Well, this morning we come to the end of this brief little mini-series, I guess it's been mostly during the month of January, looking at what can we pursue this year, going back to Psalm 27 verse 4, where the one desire of David's heart was to, to be with God, to dwell with Him, to see His beauty, and to come to know God, to know Him deeply and fully. We've looked at different barriers, if you will, to those things. Our own sin, enemies that surround us, and even the temptations that could arise as we see the success <coughs> or prosperity of the wicked. This morning we'll consider Psalm 44, a very interesting psalm, um, where twice, as we'll note, the people pray out to God that He is treating them like sheep to be slaughtered. And they call out for His salvation, His help, <coughs> His deliverance. So Psalm 44, this is a, not too lengthy a psalm, but 26 verses. Let me read it for us. As always, the very word of the living God. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. <clears throat> All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? 
For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. <clears throat> so in this reading of God's holy word, as we come before it this morning, let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, now we ask your blessing as we come before your word. Again, we ask you to speak to us and reveal your truth to us. Fulfill the promise that you have made about your word, that it goes out and does not return to you empty. Instead, it accomplishes what you, what you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. May that be true here this morning. We ask for ourselves that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us so that our eyes would be open and our ears would be open to see and hear what you would have us learn from your word this morning. Make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. We ask all of these things, as always, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are, of course, a lot of quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and very often those quotes, as we often do in our own speeches or essays or things that we might write or say or do, we use those quotes to bolster our own position. I'm arguing X, Y, Z, and oh, here's a quote from somebody that helps boost my, uh, my argument. Or it might just be evidence that proves what we're saying. This is done quite often in the New Testament as well. Matthew's fond of quoting prophecies after he shows how Christ has fulfilled that prophecy. So he describes an event that happens and he says, and this is to fill what is written, and he quotes the Old Testament. Other times we, we see quotes in the Old Testament and they don't refer just to the thing quoted. They actually include the context of the quote. Maybe the most well-known of those is in Psalm 22. Or not, Psalm 22. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opening lines of Psalm 22, which God willing we'll look at later this year. And we know that he's not just quoting those words, but he's making reference to the whole psalm. Psalm 22 is a psalm of great sorrow and anguish over suffering, and it's very appropriate for Christ's experience on the cross. And then there are things that we see in the book of Revelation, or what we read in our New Testament reading this morning. Romans 8, Paul quotes directly, word for word, from Psalm 44, verse 22. Why? Why does he use that quote, and what is he referring to? I think he's referring to the whole psalm, the context of the psalm. And the context of Psalm 44 helps us understand Romans 8, and Romans 8 helps us understand Psalm 44. But why does he bring it up in Romans 8? Consider what's going on in Romans it's a complex book, but we can summarize what's going on there, I think, fairly easily. Romans begins with a demonstration that no one has an excuse not to worship God because he's revealed himself enough for them to do so. Nevertheless, people refuse to do so. 
and all sin, Jew and Gentile alike. Therefore, everybody deserves God's wrath and punishment for sin, death. So where do life and righteousness come? Where they come from, where they always come from? Faith, just like Abraham, the man of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, the second Adam who brings life, where the first Adam brought death. So now the believer, having died to sin, is able to live to righteousness, to follow God's law. But there's a problem, and Paul knows this problem because he experiences it himself. A struggle. The man of flesh remains. And so I do the things that I know that I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things that I know that I should do. And like Paul, we cry out, who can rescue me from this body of death? And hopefully, like Paul, we also turn in praise to the God who gave us Jesus Christ and his salvation. He begins chapter 8 with this powerful statement. Those who are in Christ are no longer condemned. No condemnation, no guilt. It's gone. It's completely removed. And so, how do we live then? Well, we live by the power of the Spirit. Christ has sent that Spirit to live within us, to help us, to guide us, to teach us, to give us the power, the ability to do the kinds of things He has called us and commanded us to do and to be. But unfortunately, as we strive to do that, our life involves suffering and persecution. And Paul says, even creation itself groans. Even creation itself longs for the resurrection of the sons of God. And so the Holy Spirit is there to help us endure this and even prays for us according to God's will. And what is God's will for us? Well, He works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Why does He do this? Paul's clear in chapter 8, we heard this. He does it because He loves us. He foreknew us. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. He called us, he justified us, he glorified us. And so Paul ends this first part of the letter to the Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against us? Who can condemn us? All rhetorical questions, nobody can. If God gave up his son for us, won't he give us everything else? Again, who can separate us? What can separate us from God's love, from the love of Christ. Tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? Mm-mm. Famine? Nakedness? Danger? The sword? Not a one. Seven items? Not an accident that there's seven. Not a single one of them can separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ. And then he quotes this psalm. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's a powerful image. Helpless sheep taken to be slaughtered. Yet despite this, despite the fact that that's who we are, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so nothing, not these trials that were previously listed by Paul, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not the present, not the future, not the height or depth, not anything in creation, not a single thing 
can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is a powerful opening eight chapters of a letter. Imagine receiving this as a member of the church in Rome from Paul. Not a single thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. Given Paul's quote in its context there in Romans, and what we know of the mind of God through the Apostle Paul, you can't go back and now read Psalm 44 without thinking of Romans 8, and vice versa. So I think as we come before Psalm 44 this morning, we can see it as both instruction for us and how to face the things of life, but also as, as a song coming from our very own hearts as we each individually and together face difficulties and trials and persecutions in this life. The trials of life, broadly summarized in this psalm, again are figuratively described twice in verse 11 and verse 22 as being like sheep being slaughtered. And that's how it feels sometimes. We feel like we are being slaughtered by circumstances, by people, by the things that are happening in life. And occasionally we even see it. Watch the news. Nigerian students, Kenyan students, taken out and slaughtered for their faith and people around the world suffering the same faith. Or we can look at the history of the church, the martyrs who gave up their lives for Christ. We are like sheep to be slaughtered, all of us. This is part of the circumstance, part of the the walk with God that we all experience at some point in time in our lives. What this psalm does to teach us and to encourage us is to remind us of God's work for us. His work for us in the past, His work for us in the present, and His work for us in the future. I want to start with the present because that's where we are. We don't live in the past, hopefully. We don't live in the future. We can't. The present is what attacks us. The present is what agitates us. That's why I want to look at the present as it's portrayed in the psalm in verses 9 to 22. And then, as the psalm does, look back to what God has done in the past, verses 1 to 8, and then the appeal to God for salvation that we find in verses 23 to 26. So starting in the middle, kind of weird, but that's, I think, where we're all at. We're in the middle. And then we'll look back, and then we'll look forward. Just like in Romans 8, God is very much at work in Psalm 44, and I'd like us to see that this morning, what that work is and what lessons we can learn from it along the way. So the present. There's a few things we can note about the lamentation, and that's really what it is in verses 9 to 22. The first is, (laughs) this is the work of God. Verse 9 starts out rather remarkably. But you... Usually when we see but God in Scripture, that's a positive thing. We're talking about our sin. We're talking about our past rebellion. We're talking about all the things that God could do to punish us. 
And then scripture says, but God. And it talks about his mercy and his love and salvation. That's not what's going on here. Here it's reversed. God saved in the past, but now he's doing something different. So, but you, but you have done this. From the perspective of the psalm, God is the one behind Israel's present calamity, its present suffering and persecution. What has God done? You, it says, you have rejected and disgraced us. You've not gone out with our armies, in verse 9. Verse 10, you've made us turn back from the foe. They ran from the enemy. So that those who hate us have gotten spoil. They looted the battlefield as Israel ran. That image of sheep for the slaughter, scattering them among the nations, in verse 11. You sold us for nothing. You didn't even ask for a high price for us. We have so little value to you, is the idea in verse 12. And then in 13 and 14, you've, you've made us the taunt, the laughing stock of our neighbors. They deride us, they scorn us. You've made us a byword. We're forgotten. We're, we're a footnote in, in history. The result? All day long, constantly, without ceasing, I'm confronted by my disgrace. My face is covered in shame. I hear the taunts of those who revile me. I see my enemy. Verses 15 and 16. We don't know the context of this psalm and when it was written, but it it seems to be a time when Israel was suffering some sort of defeat or setback at the hands of its enemies. From the point of view of the psalmist, God is the one behind this. God is working to make these things happen. So there's at least an acknowledgement that God is sovereign. But it seems contrary to what we would expect. Why these troubles? Why this persecution? The psalm doesn't seem to answer directly, at least not in what we've looked at so far. And that's because the other interesting thing about this lament is from the point of view of of this lament in this psalm, Israel is innocent. They don't deserve this. Verse 17, we have not forgotten you, God. We have not been covenant breakers. Verse 18, our hearts, our steps have not turned from your way. We followed you. And what did you do, Lord? Verse 19, You broke us in the place of jackals. What are jackals? Scavengers. Lousy, disgusting scavengers. You've made us food for scavengers. You've covered us with the shadow of death. And then again, the the appeal to their innocence in verses 20 and 21. If we were guilty, if we had worshipped God falsely, or forgotten God, or worshipped idols, you'd discover it because you know the secret heart. Secrets of men's hearts. And then in verse 22, I think here is where we begin to get a clue. Why is this happening? And why Paul quotes this verse rather than say verse 11. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the little clue. For your sake, this is happening. 
In other words, if we can take what the psalmist is saying here at his word, describing Israel and describing what is going on, the persecution is not because Israel has fallen away from God and worshipped other gods or worshipped God through idols. They're worshiping him, they're following God, they're obeying his covenant, and yet they're still suffering persecution. Why? I think we can read through the line, between the lines of the psalm and see that they were suffering the persecution precisely because they were following God. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. Their enemies hate Israel because they hate God. We know that. We've seen it in our own lives. Enemies hate us because they hate our God and they hate our service to him. This ties us back again to Romans chapter 8 where our own struggle with sin broadened to our struggles with enemies and all sorts of trials in chapter 7 and 8 seems to come in the midst of our desire to follow Christ. Paul's description of the struggle in chapter 7 isn't just a matter of fact, well, here's the way things are. He laments it. I don't want it to be this way. I want to follow God and follow him rightly. It seems here that Israel had experienced this as well. And that's why I think Paul draws upon this psalm. The life of Israel at times was a life of following God and doing what he wanted and still suffering persecution despite that. God being in control, God is the one who works these things for his people's good, whether Israel or for us. That experience teaches us, in the end, about the love of God. And that's what the psalmist turns to as he begins the psalm. It's a lesson in itself. When trials come, (laughs) don't begin with your complaint about the trials. When you talk to God, don't begin with how crummy things are in your life. Instead, begin your prayers, begin your conversation with God by recounting the things that He's done for you. Because He has done things for you. If nothing else, He saved you from sin and death to life and hope. In Psalm 44, the deeds of of God for Israel have been passed down from generation to generation. Our fathers have told us the deeds you performed in their days, the days of old. Do you have those kinds of stories? Praise God if you do. Pass them on to your children. Pass them on to your grandchildren. I'm thankful for such stories in my own family, in my own life, of things that God has done for people that I can look back to and name. God did great and wonderful things. If you don't have those things in your own life or your own family, other than your own salvation, you can look to the history of the church. The church has been around for 2,000 years. God has done great things in our history. It's a tragedy to me that we do not know the history of the church because we can look at it and see God at work time after time after time 
rescuing the church like he rescued Israel during the time of Ahab and Elijah and Elisha, rescuing us from error, rescuing us from heresy, rescuing us from false doctrine, false gods, false worship. God has saved us. That's something we can look back on and give great thanks for. I find it a little amusing or, or, or befuddling maybe that we had crowds of people here for Revelation to look at the future <laughs> and it's this tiny little group of us coming to hear about the past. We can look to these things that God has done and, and celebrate and we should. There can also be stories in the lives of individual congregations. The longer they last, the more those stories accumulate and hopefully they're recorded and kept passed down to those who come. One of the cool things I get to do in my Monday through Friday job is read the histories of churches. It's fascinating, especially the older ones. In 1869, sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so got together a Bible study in, in a farm building somewhere. I've read stories of churches that begin under a tree in a field. And for years, all they had was a lean-to to worship in. God has done amazing things. And I hope we are able to recount those here in our church. Actually, he's done amazing things for us already. And we've shared some of those stories as we remember them. Remember what God has done for you. It begins to change your perspective as you look at the trials and difficulties of life that you're experiencing now. It doesn't make them any less. It doesn't make them any less painful. But it is a powerful reminder that the God who did that can take care of this. What did God do for Israel? The psalm remembers the time when Israel entered into the promised land. He drove out the other nations and planted Israel there. Afflicted those other people, but set Israel free. That even goes back to the Exodus itself. Verse 2, verse 3 says that they, they didn't win the land by the sword, but God going before them. And he did this because he loved them. In verse 3. This results in praise. You're my king, you're my salvation. In verse 4, through you we defeat our enemies, not ourselves. In verse 5, I don't put my trust in my bow or my sword, but in you, God, because you saved us from our foes. And you put our foes to shame. Therefore, we boast in you continually. We give thanks to you forever. In verse 8, who can have that kind of attitude? Well, I think it's those who know their history. We have that oft-repeated saying that those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. But what about the opposite? Those who do know history, especially God's history with his people, and with me personally and with you personally, we're not doomed we get to rejoice. We're blessed to remember what God has done. It results in praise. It results in unending praise, because how can we stop praising God for what he has done? It begins with salvation. If you've been saved, has God worked freedom and salvation for you? Then give him praise. Boast about it like Israel does. And if you're boasting, that means you're talking to someone else sharing what God has done for you. And don't stop. What a helpful thing to remember. And I know I forget, so I know you forget too. In the midst of affliction, 
persecution, when, when trials and difficulties and, and stress rises up around us, it's so easy to forget. But instead we need to remember what God has done for us and give him the praise and the glory for what he has done. And what he will do. Because he will deliver us. And that's where we can get to the future. That's where the psalm takes us. In verses 23 to 26, the cry of the psalmist to God, Awake! It's like God is sleeping. Awake, O Lord, rouse yourself. Don't neglect us. Why are you sleeping? Why are you hiding your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? Our souls are bowed down to the dust. Again, another very powerful image. Our very being itself is just wallowing in the dirt, in misery. Our belly clings to the ground. We're planted face down in the ground. That's how sorrowful we are. That's how tough the times are. Rise up. Come to our help, says verse 26. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There it is again, God's love. A remembrance of that love and a claim to that covenant steadfast love. The first was back in verse 3 where it says that God brought Israel into the land because he delighted in them. Well, it's saying the same thing in a different way. He did it because he loved them. Consistent with that steadfast love, then, Lord, redeem us. Rise up and come to our help. Remember that love, God. Redeem us not for our sake, not because we've done what is right or we haven't forgotten you or because we haven't turned away from you. Remember the Declaration of Innocence in verses 17 to 22. But do it just because you love us. And we know that you love us. So the psalmist here, I think, has faith in God, not because he has a right for God's protection. He has faith in God because he knows that God is a God of steadfast love, of unfailing covenant love. So what does Paul do again in Romans 8? Here's this wonderful echo, I think, of Psalm 44 in In Paul's letter to the church in Rome, what can separate us from the love of God? What can, who can separate us? What person, what circumstance can separate us from the love of God? Not a single person, not a single thing. And despite those people and despite those circumstances, we are more than conquerors. What is it that conquers the world? Our faith. Is it because we have earthly material victory, because we have success in this life? No. It's for one reason and one reason only. Paul repeats it in that chapter. God loves us. Because God works all things for good, even the evil that he allows to come into our life for a time. Do we believe that? Do we believe that he uses that to shape us and mold us into the people that he would have us to be? Because quite frankly, this life can be, it can be miserable. It can be terrible. 
It can be incredibly painful. It can be dangerous. It can be full of great, powerful sorrow. Israel was faithful to God and experienced these things anyway. Asked this question a couple weeks ago. We always have to ask this question of ourselves. Are these things happening because we are Christians? Because we, like Israel, have not forsaken God? Well, good. Then have faith. God is working these things for us and for our benefit, for our good. The God who saved you from yourself, from your own sins, who gave you life and hope in His very own Son, He will save you. And that day is coming. May it come soon. In the midst of calamity, then, when your soul is bowed down, when your belly clings to the dust, do not forget. Remember what God has done for you. But at the same time, call upon His name without fear, without hesitation. Not because you deserve it, because he loves you and he does love you so as we end this little section here in the Psalms I hope and pray that your goal your primary goal for the coming year is that you may dwell with God and that you may see his beauty that you might come to know him deeply and personally and as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that you might know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, indeed, we are beset by all sorts of trials and difficulties around us. We prayed for them earlier today. We won't list them all here again. You know them. You have allowed them to come into our life for your own purposes. But also, we know this for our own good. Each and every family, each and every household here this morning, each and every person is facing some trial, big or small. And as I I think around the room, many of them are quite significant. Help us to remember, Lord, the things that you have done for us. And remind us that you you are a God who saves. So we ask for salvation. We ask that you would rise up and protect us and defend us and watch over us. Not for our sakes, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but just because you love us. And may we see that love and rejoice and boast about it to others. And may you come, and may you come quickly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the last day, the thing that we all groan for and long for, even the creation itself. May that day come, and may it come swiftly. Father, we do ask it in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.